Welcome everyone to Health or Consequences. This is the Massachusetts Health Policy Podcast for Commonwealth Beacon and Mass Inc. My name is John McDonough. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. And my co-host, as always, is Paul Haddis from the Lown Institute. And we are delighted today to welcome to our program Mike Levine, who is the Assistant Secretary for Massachusetts Medicaid, also known as MassHealth, uh, which covers more than 2 million people in Massachusetts. It is the essential program for the neediest members of society. And Mike has been the director of the program the, as the Assistant Secretary for more than a year now uh, and has been at MassHealth for just around four years. So let me just open it up. Welcome, Mike, and thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate having you. Well, thanks so much for having me, John and Paul. Good to be here. We know you have one of the busiest jobs in the state, so we really respect your time. Could you tell us how a nice guy like you ends up becoming Assistant Secretary for Mass Health for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? What was your path? How did you get here? I'm not sure, sure. people broadly across the state are fully familiar with you yet. We hope they will be after our podcast. Great. Well, thank you. Um, and it's a question I, I ask myself all the time, um, but it's a privilege and, and a great joy to have the opportunity to lead the Medicaid program in Massachusetts. I really, it's a matter of, of good luck and being in the right place at the right time. So, um, so actually, I initially joined MassHealth back in 2016, much earlier in my career, and I've kind of bounced around the agency in various strategy and finance and, and other roles. Um, it wasn't until 2021 that I became the, the deputy Medicaid director. And then um, around the time that my predecessor departed um, the role, I, I stepped into the director role. And I really just could not uh, could not be more fortunate and more grateful to, to leadership and the administration for giving me the opportunity. I have found that kind of every every Medicaid director across the, the 50 plus programs in the country has a different path to the role and, and I'm just, I'm lucky to have been on mine. Okay. Michael, well, let me add my words of welcome to you in joining us today. And certainly it's a given that in the context of Massachusetts state government, MassHealth is huge. Now I think if I understand your background and right, you're a numbers guy. So when you describe Mass MassHealth, what are the most important metrics, numbers, indicators about the program from your perspective? Sure. So, um, you know, we, we cover about a third of the state. About one in three people in Massachusetts get some of their health coverage through MassHealth, which means, you know, when you're riding the T, when you're at a baseball game, when you're out in the community, um, many of the people you are with uh, have their health care um, paid, at least in part, by MassHealth. And so I think there's an enormous responsibility and opportunity to use the program to move the healthcare delivery system forward. You know, the next piece I always think about is that we cover more than 40% of kids and births in the Commonwealth, which means we have a unique opportunity to shape the trajectory of young families and both, both moms and kids in Massachusetts. And then, you know, if you think about who Medicaid was built to serve going back to, you know, the enabling statute in 1965 at a federal level, um, we cover a, a very large portion of uh, Massachusetts residents with disabilities as well. And you think about, you know, uh, certainly more than half of individuals in nursing facilities, but also those most individuals who live in the community um, with disabilities. You know, MassHealth is an important source of coverage to address um, long-term supports and services needs. 
So, you know, when you, when you think about just the number of people who we cover and the opportunity that presents, it's, it's a big one. Um, the other thing I think a lot of people don't appreciate is um, that, you know, nationally, Medicaid's the primary payer for behavioral health care services, and Massachusetts is no exception. So, um, you know, there, there's a real opportunity there as well to think about, you know, how some of the challenges in the behavioral health care system uh, can be addressed through kind of a collaborative and kind of forward thinking approach, you know, reducing some of the fragmentation, integrating better with primary care and physical health, because at the end of the day, you know, we're paying for a lot of these services. So um, th those are some of the top line metrics. I what about the out. economic sense? What, what portion of the state budget does MassHealth represent just so our listeners have an appreciation of that? Well, we're recording on budget day that the governor is releasing her budget today. So that's a timely question. Um, you know, we're, we're generally between 30 and 40% of the state budget. Um, and, and, you know, around $20 billion is spent each year. Big, big numbers. John, I think you want to follow up next. But just to follow up on that, but most of those dollars are federal dollars, correct? A little more than half. Yeah. So every time MassHealth spends a dollar, we get somewhere between 50 and 90 cents from the federal government. That's, you know, that number is different in every state, but, you know, the gist is we spend money with authority from the federal government and then they kick in their share. So across the country since the spring, the gigantic issue around Medicaid is around eligibility redetermination. Uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, states got extra money from the federal government and were prohibited from disenrolling people during the emergency, which ended this past spring. So now all 50 states are going through the redetermination. And there's a lot of concern about it. About 14 million people have been dropped nationally since it started. Some of those clearly have other coverage or no longer eligible because they've got jobs back. Uh, some have been dropped for administrative and bureaucratic reasons, including millions of kids. So can you tell us how is the redetermination process going in Massachusetts versus what you see across the country? Of course, um, redeterminations has been our biggest priority at MassHealth, certainly for as long as I've I've been in this role over the past year. Uh, and there's one piece of context before you get to the big drop in caseload, I think it's important to appreciate that our caseload grew by about 600,000 members from February of 2020, right before the pandemic began, to April of 2023, when we began to redetermine people. And you may ask yourself, why did, why did Massachusetts and every state's Medicaid rules grow so much? It's because Congress, at the very beginning of the pandemic, directed states to stop disenrolling people. So even if you determine that someone is ineligible for Medicaid, they kept Medicaid until we started this redeterminations process. Um, so people came on every month, in particular around March, April, May of 2020, when there was enormous economic disruption, we had a lot more people eligible for Medicaid, our caseload spiked, and then it has steadily grown over the course of three years from about 1.8 million to 2.4 million last spring. So the process we're going through now is taking all those 2.4 million members and now, again, following Congress's directives, within one year, redetermining every member's eligibility. And, um, and as we do so, I've kind of said this everywhere I've gone, um, universal coverage in Massachusetts is the North Star. And that has two implications for how we go about this process. The first is 
doing everything we can to ensure that eligible Mass Health members stay on the program and don't get tripped up over some of the paperwork concerns, John, you alluded to in your question. The second piece is around helping those hundreds of thousands of people who we know are no longer eligible for Mass Health. Think of someone, they lost their job in April 2020, they've been employed since August 2020, they are still employed, their income is too high to be Mass Health eligible. Our goal is to help those individuals and families find affordable coverage, be it on the health connector, with an employer, with a spouse, you name it. So on the first piece, what are we doing to keep eligible people enrolled? We've significantly increased the number and type of members who can keep their coverage without having to take any action. That gets called a, an auto renewal in kind of Medicaid speak. And it's one of the most important tools we have because why bother someone with paperwork if you can go ping a federal or private data set that indicates you know, their income is below the threshold. We've also done far more direct member outreach than we ever have before the pandemic. So we are calling members, we are texting members, we are emailing them when they need to take action. The last thing we've done is we've mobilized and enlisted our partners. So health plans, you know, many mass health members get coverage through a, a Medicaid managed care organization. Every week they get a file of members who need to do something to keep coverage. They need to send us back proof of income. They need to tell us about an address change. They need to, you know, you name it. Now the health plans and in some cases providers are armed with that information and they can reach out. They are often even one click closer to the member than we are. Say, hey, John, um, you have until next Tuesday to get this, you know, response back to Mass Health. Can I help you? You know, can we kind of do this together? All of those things, you know, expanding auto renewals, direct outreach to members, and, and enlisting our health plans, we're not going to stop doing those when we're done with redeterminations. We think they're really important tools, and we've had great partners along the way to kind of help us do direct outreach to members who need to take action. Those are all the things that we're doing to kind of keep, keep eligible folks enrolled. On point two, which is around helping people who are not eligible for MassHealth find coverage elsewhere, um, we have a little bit of an advantage in the Commonwealth because our eligibility system is integrated with the connector. So if I, Mike Levine, get picked up for redetermination, it's my turn to go through the process. They see, oh, you know, Mike's income is over 138% of the federal poverty level, whatever the relevant threshold is. Instead of saying, good luck, see you next year, we, you go straight to the connector. And now you're getting outreach from the connector saying, hey, you know, you're eligible for a subsidy for these plans. Here are your choices. Shop now, sign up now. And that kind of, uh, it's not even a warm handoff because it's all within the same system, has been a really important tool that we've been able to leverage. And I'll just say the last thing is we've done a ton of awareness raising in the community. So we've got a great partnership with Healthcare for All and with the Health Connector um, and a bunch of community-based organizations in the 15 cities and towns with the most mass health members. They've knocked on 430,000 doors. They've done hundreds, if not thousands, of community events. We're just trying to get the message out there. And I think all those things have, have been important. And, and how do you be, differentiate you know, in terms of the rest of the country and how Massachusetts is doing versus the other 49 states? What do you observe? So a couple of ways. Um, so first of all, we've seen, we've seen over 200,000 members come off the caseload in terms of our, our caseload is lower. We're about, you know, eight months into the process. Um, you mentioned kids, uh, John. So, you know, CMS released some data. The federal government um, released some data a couple months, uh, maybe only a month ago, that kind of looked state by state at the loss of enrollment among children. Massachusetts had actually seen an increase in kids over that time. 
So relative to some states that have seen a big drop in kids during the time period that, um, that the federal government was looking at, we had not seen a decrease. You know, since then, we have seen some kids whose families are over income. But um, I'd say we feel, we feel good about the steps we've been able to take around preserving coverage for many of our populations. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, there's been a big increase in the connector caseload. Um, you know, they're up over 50,000 members relative to when we started. I think that that number is probably old by the time I'm saying it. But um, that gives us some inclination that for people who are on MassHealth, who, you know, they really are over income for this program, they're able to find affordable coverage elsewhere. So it seems like MassHealth is almost in a constant state of reinvention. And just going back to the last decade prior to COVID, uh, the late teens, Massachusetts transferred over a million of its enrollees from the plans they had been in into one of 17 new accountable care organizations, which was a big initiative out of the Affordable Care Act federally. That was a huge change in MassHealth. Looking back now, five years later, how has that worked? Was it worth the effort? Has it reduced cost? Has it increased quality? What are you seeing in that demonstration after all of this time and all of the enormous effort that you and providers and, and enrollees had to go through? I would say, yes, it has definitely been worth the effort and there's a lot more to come. So, you know, like you said, in 2018, we launched the ACO program. We pulled, you know, over a million members into these uh, primary care centered organizations that are accountable for the cost, the quality, and the member experience of care. We have seen really encouraging data. Granted, you know, COVID hit in year three of the program. It's always hard to draw conclusions when you run head on into a pandemic, but, you know, 11% higher rates of primary care engagement among ACO members compared to their non-ACO peers. Significant declines in potentially avoidable hospital admissions versus the non-ACO population. We have ACO members who are getting housing and nutrition supports that would have been unthinkable in Medicaid or frankly any other kind of health insurance just a couple of years ago. So we, we absolutely feel like we're on the right track. You have you know, these providers thinking about total cost of care in a way that you know, we're having conversations with providers we never would have had five, six years ago before this model. Um, so I think you know, we, we've kind of talked about it as you know, it's a cruise ship that we spent the first couple of years kind of pointing in the right direction, getting the infrastructure built, getting everyone's kind of heads pointed in the same way. And now, you know, we, we launched version two of the program in April of 2023. We have 17 new ACOs. They are kind of, we're, we're pulling out of harbor, uh, if I extend the metaphor, doing a lot more around complex care management, some of these health-related social needs. So it's, it's the right vehicle for us. We're going to um, continue to invest there. And I think that the early data is promising. Michael, you just noted that uh, you find yourself increasingly engaged in conversations with providers. So I want to talk about them if I could for a moment. As we know, MassHealth is a major source of funding for hospitals, clinics, health centers, nursing homes, other kinds of providers. And we know right now we're seeing one of the health systems in our state, Steward, publicly saying that a main cause of their current financial challenge is low Medicaid reimbursement. So we, John and I are interested to see if you have any specific thought about that or response to that question one. But, but question two part here is more broadly, to what extent should mass health reimbursement policy be shaped by concerns over financial viability threats to providers? So I'm interested in thoughts on both of those, if you would. 
Yeah, so I think it's important in a lot of health policy debates, we focus on commercial rates and how some systems get much higher commercial rates, some systems get much lower, and that um, you know the safety net you know doesn't safety net providers don't get paid as much. I think it's important to just level set that the opposite is true in Medicaid. So the more public payer patients that a provider like a hospital serves, the more they get paid for those services because we fund lots of hospitals and other organizations that serve a safety net population, including uh, the organization you mentioned, Paul, with significant supplemental funding over the course of the year. It's a common Medicaid practice, and it's a really important one that sustains the safety net here in Massachusetts and, and in every state. You know, I'd point to something we did starting a year and a half ago, where we worked with safety net hospitals on a provider assessment that lots of details, but the upshot was several hundred million dollars a year of support for safety net hospitals, enabling them to serve our members and preserve access in communities across the state. So I think that's a long way of answering your question to say, of course, it's top of our mind. You know, it doesn't matter who the provider is. We know that, but for a thoughtful, comprehensive approach, you know, certain communities are going to lose access to services. Uh, and we work closely with providers to understand kind of what the various risks are and how we can address them with the goal of ensuring that our members, you know, our responsibility and that our members can get high quality services here in the communities that they live in. And safety net financing is a really important part of that and a huge um, focus for us at MassHealth. Thanks. Thanks for your comment about that. And, and, uh, we look forward. We, we know that this gonna, it's going to be an issue of, of concern probably in policy circles in the next weeks to months, if, if not years. But let me turn to another really important issue, which is obtaining mental health and substance abuse services. It's hard. It's, it's hard for all of us and especially for the Medicaid population. Uh, we know there can be some really incredible challenges at times to have gotten access to those services. Many believe that the behavioral health system, you know, in our state and in our country really uh, is sort of challenging from an access perspective, to say the least. What are you trying to do about this, particularly for your Medicaid population? And what's the Healy administration's agenda around all this? So behavioral health is a top priority for the Healy administration and I'd say for um for mass health in particular as a, as a key primary payer for behavioral health services across the state. Um, I think, you know, we're about a year into a multi-year reform effort called the, um, the Roadmap for Behavioral Health Reform. Uh, since last January, we've stood up 26 community behavioral health centers that operate 24-7 in the community crisis services for kids and adults. We have a behavioral health helpline that anyone can call. Doesn't matter if you, what insurance card you have in your wallet. You can call and you can get connected to care. Um, and I think that, you know, when we look at the volume of crisis services that have been delivered over the first year and the fact that um, people who are waiting in the emergency department and behavioral health crisis, those numbers are down from last year. Um, we feel like we are on the right track for those who, again, have kind of urgent crisis-based uh, needs. There's a ton of work to do particularly around children's behavioral health and just generally being able to get an outpatient behavioral health visit. I mean, if you or I were to call and try to get in for a visit as a new patient, I'd, I'd, we would have to wait quite a while. So I think we acknowledge, you know, given our role and who we cover, we, we have a real responsibility to um, 
to do what we can to get access and quality to a place that residents of the Commonwealth expect. So, um, Mike, since the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, there's been a lot of interest in states across the country in trying to address what are called social determinants of health and their impact on met people's health and well-being as well as, uh, as, well as the costs of care. Things like uh, housing, uh, nutrition, transportation that can have huge impacts um, on people's ability to access services and to, and to stay healthy. Where is Massachusetts on this in the spectrum of states around the country that are on the cutting edge? We know there's something that's part of your uh, accountable care organization demonstration called flexible services. Is that a part of it? And can you create some context for people around mass health and social determinants of health and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, addressing health-related social needs is a huge focus for us. And we've, I think, been in the vanguard nationally for, for many years now. You know, we started out, I'd say, uh, with um, risk adjustment, which is actually accounting for, you know, risk of homelessness, things that do not, you know, show up in a medical chart typically in terms of what it takes to serve a member and, and ensure that our ACOs are able to dedicate resources to addressing health-related social needs. Uh, since January 2020, we've had a program called the Flexible Services Program, where, you know, if you're in an ACO and you have housing insecurity or food insecurity, you can get direct help that's integrated with your overall uh, healthcare experience um, with those concerns. That includes medically tailored meals, that includes housing search, that includes a whole bunch of supports that are meant to keep people fed and housed. And in our latest waiver, launching in 2023, we've expanded the set of services that are available to our members. Um, I think we recognize that most of what impacts someone's health happens outside the four walls of a doctor's office or a hospital or a community health center. And uh, we have integrated that focus into our accountable care organization model um, so that, you know, you don't, it's not something that happens over on the side, uh, all integrated into the member care experience. And just the last thing I'd say, you know, it's probably true in other states. We have been at this for a long time. I mean, we, we've had something in Massachusetts called the Community Support Program that supports homeless or at-risk of homeless individuals with behavioral health needs for, I think, two decades at this point. So there are, there's a good foundation of efforts here in Massachusetts that I think we're building upon. I'd say we've really taken it to the next level of focus and funding with uh, our, our latest 1115 waivers. Then again, I'm going to uh, create access to housing and nutrition services for a whole host of members who, you know, previously did not have it. And where, where do flexible services fit into that? Just not to get into mass health lingo, but uh, lots of people talk about that. Where where does that fit in? So it's within the ACO program. So I, I Mike, am a mass health member, and I belong to you know ACOA. Um, I go to ACOA and I get screened, and it turns out that you know because of my um, because of a couple of chronic conditions I have and a couple other things, it'd be good for me to get medically tailored meals three times a week. The ACO is responsible for calling and working with a network of providers who are going to get me that medically tailored meal. And because the ACO is linked in with my primary care doc and everyone else, it's a kind of integrated experience that, um, that I get as kind of part of being an ACO member. And is that working well? I mean, it sounds great. Um, these things are often simple in concept and really hard then to do on the ground. How is it working? Yeah, I'd say it's working well. Again, we launched it in January of 2020. So imagine what those first uh, two years were like. 
but I think we are at a place now and, and you know, we were able to get to a common point of view with the federal government as well around our 1115 waiver, where, you know, there is a strong network of providers. Um, there is, I, I think that the ACOs who, you know, just like us, were not in the habit of building a network of housing and nutrition support organizations have built that network. We've had great learning communities and technical assistance and really built this up together um, to the point now where, uh, you know, you see two things. You see a really significant volume of people getting these services. And uh, I'd say the data is too early uh, as we kind of come into a post-COVID environment. But, you know, we, we do see isolated studies indicating that really encouraging avoidance of, of healthcare utilization for people who get onto these onto these flexible services programs. So everything we've seen indicate we got to keep trying. Finally, Mike, one, one more question, if we could. You know, one of your predecessors, Daniel Tsai, um, who was running Medicaid in Massachusetts, left because the Biden administration recruited him to do that for our country. So he sits in Washington now for Center at Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services. From your perspective, how's he doing in that role? And what's it like for you to have to negotiate and deal with the Biden administration over uh, Medicaid policy matters or money flows or whatever it is that you all talk about? So, uh, you know, it was hard to lose Dan. Uh, and it was, a big, it was a big win for the Biden administration. So I'm happy for him and I'm happy for them. Um, talk about a hard job. Managing Medicaid nationally in that political environment uh, is, is, I'm sure, uh, a handful. Look, we're very fortunate. Uh, the Biden administration has made their priorities pretty clear, and they're very, very similar to ours. You know, they want to work on coverage. They want to work on health equity. They want to work on health-related social needs. You know, you look at what HHS at the federal level has published around playbooks and uh, guidance to states. It's all consistent with the things we're doing here. And so it's nice to be able to sit down. And it's not, it's not just because, you know, Dan knows Massachusetts. It's really from a policy standpoint. You know, we are starting with a shared set of priorities on all the big topics we're working through. States and, and CMS always have very healthy and spirited back and forth around, you know, financing and other sorts of things. Um, but we more often than not have common goals in mind. And that has been, um, I think, only to our benefit. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being responsive really to our, the range of questions that John and I had for you. Uh, it was a delight today to have you, our Assistant Secretary for Mass Health from Massachusetts, join us today on, on the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys having me. This was fun. Thanks. Thank you, Michael.